I'm delighted to uh, welcome Barry Dawes again. Uh, he gave us a fascinating uh, presentation yesterday, and he is going to be talking to us now about the Australian loan sector. Ladies and gentlemen, Barry Dawes. Thanks so much. I want to follow on from some of the things I said yesterday. Now, not everyone was here yesterday. Can people tell me who wasn't here yesterday? I'm not all here. We can see that. Okay, so there's just some of the things I'll, I'll run through which were in, in yesterday's presentation. So if you've seen it before, um, hopefully it will uh, refresh your memory. Um, uh, if uh, those people haven't seen it before, I think you'll find it interesting. Um, gold is really important uh, in Australia and, and from my point of view, um, I really believe that the gold price drives the resource sector. Um, it's not our biggest export because coal is our number one export by a long way uh, and iron ore comes second and, and then it's between aluminium and gold but I, I, I just see gold becoming more and more important as we go through. Um, gold really drives the speculative side of the market, drives the second line stocks and it also has the, the effect of attracting a lot of foreign money. And by that I mean from the UK, from China, Hong Kong, uh, China, uh, Japan, from the United States, and, and also from Germany. And so far I have seen very little of that money flowing into the Australian market. A number of times I've made the point that here we've finished 10 years of bull market in gold, and it's almost so what? Um, so many people are not on board with bull market in gold and, and other commodities. Uh, so I, I think we've got a long way to go as, as the fundamentals of, of from the, inter the international um, position start to really focus on where we're going. And, um, uh, and then as people recognise that, that the gold price is improving and as we see the, the operational developments are taking place within the, the sector itself. Um, again, I put a disclaimer. I, I basically earn money through commissions on share trading, sorry, share, share transactions, and also uh, from capital raising. So, companies that I mentioned here, uh, I may have received a benefit from it. Now, uh, into the 21st century, I, I really do believe that the Australian gold sector is going through a renaissance. And um, clearly, we've got a, a rising gold price. We actually had $1,500 an ounce. Uh, back in about March of this year, when the $8 was relatively low and the gold price uh, went, went through $1,000. Um, more recently it's around 1140 and it's been remarkably steady, remarkably steady over the last um, just about two months. Um, it's only moved within uh, $30 or $40 of that, so it's been quite, quite solid. And we're starting to see um, this rising gold price stimulating production, stimulating activity and exploration, and we're seeing a re-emergence of Australian gold producers. Um, and I'll come back to that and we'll see the significance of it. And um, I, I believe that the, the gold sector stocks now are in a major long-term uptrend, and we're only in the very early days. Um, you, you might have seen something, I think it might have been The, the Economist, but they, they said that Sydney rated number two in the world for, for capital raisings and, and uh, this is an extraordinary thing because you know, usually think of, of London and New York. But what actually happened was that our banks raised about $13 billion and then there was uh, very substantial cap capital raisings amongst the, the gold stocks. And, uh, and it was interesting, the gold price was moving up and as I said, it got up to $1,500. So the Newcrests and the Lahirs uh, went to raise big chunks of money. And then over succeeding months, the, Aggressively smaller companies uh, were, were received some funding, and then um, over the last two or three months, we've been looking at the smaller ones. Now that reflects the fact that there was a a, a, a drought in terms of uh, uh, equity capital available for the, for the for the gold sector, really from about very late 2007. So, if you like, the, the sector's been recapitalised, and uh, that money will go into new projects and new exploration. And uh, exploration activity um, is at a high level. It was down a bit in the year to June of 2009. As most of you are probably aware, it's Australia has a June financial year, so things like ABA will report data in the June year. 
but that exploration was down in the June year, but I can see it picking up in the June year to 2010. Uh, it's in my view that the sector is still very much under-owned. Uh, Australian institutions have very, very underweight uh, resource stocks. They tend to stick to the, the uh, highly liquid large cap stocks like Lahir or, or Newcrest or BHP Woodside and very little underneath that. So um, I, I believe it's still under owned although a lot of these capital raisings that we were talking about recently did go to institutions uh, who, didn't, who, who really weren't participating in the market previously. But I think we're still at the early stages of a bull market. Now the Australian market is really reacting to all the international influences. And um, one very important thing is that uh, world production is declining. Now, as I'm sure you're all aware, that this will be the ninth consecutive year of a decline in world gold production. And the main reason for that is the decline in gold production in South Africa. And uh, in the, the same time, we've seen declines in Australia, the United States, um, a rise in China. China's now the, the world's largest producer, and places like Peru are uh, in the top um, four or five. Um, what I believe that the, the gold sector is, is anticipating is at the end of fiat money, obviously that's going to be discussed by Professor Fekete, um in far better uh, detail than I'd ever imagined, but it's, it's one thing which people uh, are recognising around the world and I think that's one of the reasons why the gold price is, is so strong. The other thing which is really important is is Chindia. Now, uh, I mentioned yesterday that's China and India together. Um, around about 1000 AD, you could say that China and India made up 75 80% of world GDP. Um, they did a Rip Van Winkle, they went for asleep for the, the 20th century, and they've, um, they've woken up and um, they want to reassert their rightful position of 75 to 80% of world GDP, reflecting population. Um, there's some really interesting things to, for us to think about when we think about what, e what economies are at different currency levels. Um, I'll leave things for like that. If the currency falls 30 or 40% does GDP fall? I mean, it won't fall by 30%, but does it fall? Does the asset value of the underlying, underlying GDP fall and the asset value of the currency fall? These are interesting things for us to think about. Um, but it just will it will accelerate um, the growth of India uh, and, and China. The other thing you should be watching is MENA. Now, you may not have heard of MENA, but MENA is Middle East and North Africa. The Middle East is doing extremely well through all the oil revenues through the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is starting to industrialize. It's starting to go into the, the mining business, uh, although Rio Tinto decided that we would join them. Uh, another great act of... Um, Bastardly by Rio. Um, but you also need to understand the, the amount of investment that's going into the gold sector in North Africa, in places like Mali and Burkina Faso and, and uh, Guyana, all, all those, um, sorry, Guinea, um, all those areas in the, in the hump of, um, of Africa, are, they're getting real projects being built and, and they're, they're getting stable economies and actually growing. And the other thing is, is Latin America. Now, I, I mentioned yesterday, Latin America's got 600 million people. And Chile and Peru, Colombia, uh, Panama, are all running budget surpluses. They've got good exposure to commodities. They've repaid all their debt. Their, their public sector is being restrained. Um, Argentina repaid all its debt and then it started to go a bit wobbly. Um, and Brazil itself, which is the largest, with about 300 million people, um, it's also done quite well, although I think it's got about $60 billion in, in US treasuries. It didn't, it didn't repay all its debt, and it's got some US treasuries. So they're very important in terms of living standards rising. Now, in my view, bond markets around the world are, are breaking down, and I'll, I'll come to that. I mentioned this yesterday. Very important for you to understand um, well, what I think is happening anyway. Uh, I see that the currencies are in turmoil, it's, and it's not just the US dollar, it's going to be the yen, it's going to be the euro, it's going to be the pound. And um, I, I, I'll call this uh, a major risk of 
of inflation. Um, here we're talking about monetary inflation. And, um, and probably at the same time we're looking at some uh, effects to people's overall living standards. But however we look at it, gold is in a, a period of major revaluation um, at an international level. Looking at gold production, uh, I mentioned before that um, this will be the this year will be the ninth year of decline in gold production. So we're we're producing around about 23-2400 tons a year, and uh, uh, I can see that declining uh, primarily because South Africa will be continuing to decline. Uh, the reason South Africa is is declining is it's, in, it's too difficult to invest in South Africa to do things like put in new shaft. If you were to put in a new vertical shaft which is going to go down three or four kilometres, it's going to cost you about two billion US dollars. And, and no one, no one is going to lend a South African company two billion dollars um, to put that shaft in it. And it might take them five or six or eight years. It's, it's, it's just not going to happen. So I expect that gold production in South Africa will continue to decline. Uh, Peru will increase, China will increase, and Australia will rec recover. Um, I, I mentioned that, that um, I believe that bond markets are, are breaking down around the world. Now this is one of the most significant charts that, uh, that I show, and it's one that you should all become familiar with, if, you, if not already. This is the long uh, treasury bond going back to the last cyclical low that I could see, which is 1942. And from 1942 up to 1981, we had 39 years, 39 years of rising interest rates. We had um, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society matched with the, the Vietnam War, and that basically led to a, a period of, of inflation. Um, the gold price, as you will recall, picked up on the 21st of January 1980, and interest rates at the long end um, peaked out in the first quarter of 1981. And then after that we had 28 years of falling bond yields or declining uh, interest rates. Now, the first uh, 15 or 16 years of that in my view was disinflation, where we actually had the rate of inflation falling. <coughs> inflation was still there but, but falling. And then we had um, this period that, that I would call deflation, which, which really affected the, the commodity sector. Um, now, Bay Paris yesterday kindly suggested it was probably Clinton's um, people trying to manipulate the bond market and, and uh, manipulate commodity prices because um, it's interesting that we had a, a very important low in uh, sorry, bond yields here in October 1998, which was the same month that the oil price bottomed, um, the nickel price, the platinum price, and, um, and the aluminium price. The gold price bottomed uh, a few months later in, in March of 1999, uh, but that, that represented a, a period of deflation. During this period, we, we saw the oil price smashed under $10, the $8 was smashed, the Canadian dollar was smashed. Um, so many commodities were, were affected. Now, since then, in my view, we've, we've seen uh, manipulation by the US Federal Reserve in, in bringing interest rates down, and, and we saw that final spike low in yield um, late last year uh, when we saw 2.5% on, on long-term treasuries. That, to me, marked the end of this, this bull market in, um, in bonds. The other really important thing that, that I've deduced from this is that since about 1990, uh, uh, and this is after the 87 crash. Uh, uh, the 87 crash in Australia uh, just destroyed the, the mining industry. Uh, it was impossible, it was extremely difficult, to near impossible to raise money between uh, 1988 and 2001. Uh, so we had a depression of about 15 years. But um, what became very, very important is that Anyone who had anything to do with the resource sector, if they were in a big merchant bank, investment bank, if they were in funds management or in the broking, basically got demoted because there was no money to be made for the firm. If you're a chief investment officer, hey, you didn't need to have any resource stocks. They were dead forever. 
uh, just went and bought banks and infrastructure stocks and retailers and, and anything else but, but resources. So the whole resource sector knowledge base has been removed from many of those uh, institutions and it's only now just coming back. So but basically what it meant is that anyone who was 30 years old in 1990 and today is 50, he's had his entire career investing in a period of declining interest rates. Now that's the CEOs, that's the CFOs and, and CIOs, Chief Investment um, Officers. So the whole world is geared to declining interest rates. And that's why I think they're going to find quite a shock as we go forward. But this is going to have a big bearing, and the prices of bonds, big bearing on gold, in my view. Um, I also showed this... Sorry, very cool. No, no. So if the interest rate's going to go up, that means the bond price is going to go down. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And also because the, uh, the coupon is relatively low now, uh, a small rise in the coupon has a big bearing on the, on the capital value of the bond. Now, this is another thing which is fundamental to the, the outlook, I think, for commodities and equities generally, but particularly commodities, resource sector uh, equities. And that's the amount of cash on the sidelines. Now, this is from the bank credit analyst. Now, this is from March. But what it said was that in March, the, the Wilshire 5000 index, which is a very broad index in the, the US, con contains all the S&P 500 and the, and the next 6,000 stocks, about 6,500 stocks there, has a capitalization of about $13 trillion, a so much broad index. But the cash on the sidelines in banks and cash management trusts, 95% of the capitalization of the stock market was in cash, earning 0.2%. Now those numbers have come down a bit, but the interest rates haven't gone up. So this is, this is a, you've got to follow the money. You've got to follow the money. Um, it's not about GDP, it's, it's not about um, uh, economic recovery, it's, it's flow of funds. We've got to find where these funds are going to go. And they're certainly not going to go into bonds. If they're going bonds, they're not going to be there for very long. And not only will we have money coming out of cash, we'll have money coming out of bonds. So that's going to be a big driver, I think, for commodities generally as we go through the next few years. Uh, in, in my view, we've got the US dollar breaking down um, and the pound break, breaking down. Now, it's my view that um, the A dollar will go through parity and, and much higher than that, but we will also go to parity and higher than that against the pound. Um, the, if you look at what's going on there, um, they've had six quarters of, of negative growth. They have very little manufacturing industry. Uh, most of their economy was, was associated with finance, um, construction, and property, and all those three related in, in, in London. Uh, they're now a net importer of, of uh, oil and gas, so they're not in a very strong position. And Mr. Brown has sold all their gold and they've been doing quantitative easing there, so the outlook for the UK, I think, is, is quite good. And I, I would say that given the disparity in the performance of, of economies within, within Europe, um, we'll probably find that the Euro will find it difficult to run for more than a few more years, but I've been saying that too long, but I think it's still going to, to have some real problem. I think we will see the, the, the UN rising um, as it it becomes more and more important. So I say there that the A dollars um, will rally above parity against the US dollar, and we've recently made 25-year highs against the pound, but we will just continue to go there. Now, it's really interesting talking to people in the UK um, and the US to a lesser degree. They're saying, oh, the Australian dollar's too high. I, I won't come and invest. Um, I'll wait for it to, to come down. But they're, not sort of, they're still not giving the story yet that they will need to hedge um, against currency weakness and the best place is really gold stocks measured in, in A dollars. Um, gold and silver uh, would still be the best um, currencies but it's going to be um, the gold producers and, and the general commodity currencies that are going to be the best performers uh, I think over the next 10 years. Um, you're all familiar with this US dollar index. Um, as you know, we're around about 77, 78 on this, this index. 
uh, I think we're going to come down here somewhere. Uh, I noticed someone suggested that we'll get a rally up about here, which I find uh, a bit hard to believe, but um, anything can happen with these markets with, with manipulation. But I think overall this currency will come down. This is not a very good index because it's about 57% against the, the euro. It's got the Swedish krona there, it's got the Canadian dollar, the yen, the pound. Um, so I don't think it's a very, very good index, but nevertheless it's the one that everyone follows and I think that it's, it's going to basically break this, this sort of um, downtrend line um, over the next uh, 12 months. So there could be a, a much weaker dollar. It, it, will, it will come down, um, I guess, steadily like that rather than just a, a, a very sharp crash, I think. Um, in the short term, you're all familiar with these things, I, I, I assume, but it is traveling below its 50-day its and 200-day, oh, sorry, 200-week moving average. I guess it can rally up here a bit, but I think it's still going to go down. Um, looking at the A dollar, uh, it, it was funny, um, the last time I was in Canberra, I lived in Canberra, worked in Canberra when the, the currency was, a, was 149 against the US dollar. Uh, in, in uh, the very early 70s and it's been a pretty sad story of one-way street um, down to our low of just at uh, 48 and a half there in 2001 but we, we've had a good recovery uh, sold off very very heavily um, in the market turmoil last year but we've covered it quite recovered quite well got up to I think we went to 93 intraday uh, we, we pulled back a bit, but I, I, I think we're going to continue on and come up to about a dollar 12 uh, in the not too distant future and, and longer term go and challenge these highs. Um, this is very interesting against the pound. This is uh, from 1983. I, I found it very difficult to find longer term data um, but uh, we, we made 25 year highs uh, at, at around 57 uh, a week or so ago and, and I, I, I just think this is going to continue to uh, be quite strong. Significance of a strong Australian dollar, the Australian economy, our exports are going to be. Uh, that's true, um, but if we think that Australia is a resource currency essentially, because about uh, probably 55% of our exports are, are resource sector exports, then like a bit of um, agricultural stuff on there, and other exports aren't that big. Sure agricultural gets hurt in the, in the short term um, and manufacturing gets hurt but prices for commodities rise much higher much faster in greater percentages than does the rise in the currency the rise in currency is the best thing that we can have because it means that we're forced to be more productive and we're forced to change our work practices and we're forced to make changes everywhere and it's in best, everyone's best interest to have a strong currency, in my view. I much prefer to have a strong currency and be able to buy things more cheaply than have a low currency and uh, not be able to buy anything, not be able to go anywhere. So strong currencies is the best thing. So don't, don't, our, don't that make our, our resources too expensive for China? Wouldn't they prefer them to buy from Brazil or somewhere else? Well, Brazil's probably an even stronger currency than the A dollar at the moment, believe it or not. Um, but if if um, China decides it doesn't want to price in US dollars anymore, because if, if the yuan rises, obviously US dollar prices are falling for them. But at the end of the day, um, it doesn't really matter. In my view, it doesn't matter. People will pay whatever the market is. It has some impact at the margin, but they will pay whatever is the rate. That's been my experience. Now, this is very interesting. Um, this is the A dollar versus the Philadelphia Gold Index um, going back over the last 15 years. And uh, you can't get it much better than that. I used to follow the A dollar against this, the, the old CRB index deflated by the US GDP deflator, and it was a pretty good match up until um, I think it was. A, up until about 1996 when they sort of smashed all the, all the currencies and just didn't make sense anymore. But um, against you the, XAU? the Philadelphia Gold Index? 
so it's it's quite a remarkable match. Um, Do you know what the correlation is? Well, I haven't done it, but I'd say an R squared is about 97%. Really? But just eyeballing it. Yeah. Um, it's just, I mean, it's just one of those things that's magic. It just that it works. Um, in the olden days, <laughs> sorry, about, about 25 years ago, um, it used to be that people would just follow the copper price and, and uh, push the A dollar up. Oh, what have I done? Oh, uh, push the A dollar up um, when the copper price moved. But the, but the funny thing was that Australia really had, only had one copper mine in those days, Mount Isa mine, so um, perception's everything. It was amazing that they used to just manage to the A dollar exposure by the copper, the, the price of the copper, price of copper. So um, the gold outlook, we've seen record high gold prices in all currencies this year. Now we don't have record prices today um, in all currencies, but the A dollar saw its highs early, earlier in the year. But it's it's quite remarkable how um, th things are volatile. But it, if you did gold price in a basket of currencies, it's recently just started to kick up and I, I think that's, that's going to move to new highs again in 2010. But importantly, gold prices in real terms, in, in real US dollars, um, are still very, very modest. I mean, we're, we're only about 50% of the level we were in 1980 when, when the gold price was $875. So, gold price at the moment is not a not ex uh, overextended, particularly given what's, what's going on around the world, uh, particularly in terms of worldwide monetary stimulus and um, quantitative easing, which is taking place in, in particularly the US and, and in the UK. So I think we've got quite um, significant upside in the precious metals and, and gold equities are, are ready to surge after a 28-year consolidation. I came across this, this chart just a, a week or so and, and I I thought, holy cow, um, this, this, this is just amazing. You might remember my interest rate chart. We've had 28 years of decline in interest rates and rising bond prices and we've seen a turn. And uh, the gold equities in the US, uh, according to the S&P Gold Index, have been consolidating for 28 years. And I think this is one of the reasons why I've been so frustrated because um, I hadn't appreciated that the longer term issues that are that are at play in um, the XAU and the Q. Um, we'll, we'll come to that. Now, there's a gold price in US dollars. You're all familiar with that. We've taken out the 1980 high. Um, the low is, was in March of, of 99, so we've had over 10 years of bull market. Um, I'm a stockbroker. I'm in the business of basically raising money for resource companies, but primarily gold companies. and. Um, People still aren't knocking on the door, waiting, out, waiting for our, our latest IPO or our capital raising that we're doing. They're not, they're not lining up outside, they're not bringing us. There are a few. We, we, we go to a number of con conferences and Andy, you, you pick up half a dozen sort of new clients who are enthusiastic, but for the most part, people aren't interested yet. That's why we, I think we're still very early in the stage. Now, if we look at the real gold price, uh, if we talk today's price and um, put it back compared to where we were in 1980, um, we should be $2,000 today. So, you know, what, it, what it's really saying is that we're only about 45% off. Larry, you've used, real, you've used the official CPI, you've used yeah, yeah, yeah. the unofficial CPI, that hasn't been corrected, it's more like 6,000. I don't want to do that sort of stuff. <laughs> you could do it here. <laughs> no, you're perfectly right. But um, I mean, I, I have no no problem at all seeing gold price of five or six thousand dollars in the next couple of years. I mean, I mean the next couple of years. Uh, I am of the persuasion that we will see quite a strong rise in gold price, mainly because of the, the flow of. of, of of um, capital into the gold sector and the gold stocks, and particularly when you see um, just a couple of other things. Now, this is the XAU, the Philadelphia Gold Index, which unfortunately is the only one I can get on iris. I, I, 
you get the Huey on a, on a different um, system, but I can't manipulate the data. But the thing that I found so interesting about this is that um, we, we had our low, and um, this bull market has certainly climbed a wall of worry. You've heard the term bull market climate, a wall of worry. We had um, two steps forward, one step back. Three steps forward, two steps back, and another one, another couple sideways. Three steps forward, one back, <laughs> three sideways, two steps forward, three sideways. And I really thought this one was the one where we were going to really rally um, last um, July, August, and of course it didn't quite work that way. Um, <laughs> Um, and it, it just got smashed down. And this is this is not natural selling. This is aggressive shorting. I and mean, this is this is stupidity. I, I, I couldn't believe what happened last year because it didn't make sense. Um, not in the resource sector market compared to the fundamentals that I understood in terms of supply and demand, in terms of price levels, and and, and what was really happening um, last year was an aberration and. and and stupidity, particularly when you saw how much these things have rallied back. And remember, remember when we compared it to the A dollar? <laughs> the A dollar had a sell-off and, and has um, come back. Now, one other thing I, I, I mentioned yesterday, the resource sector made its loans in November, December of last year. And so we saw the commodities make their loan, the resource stocks made their loan, the Chinese, the, the Shanghai index made its low on the 31st of October. Um, Hong Kong made its low. The Dow, S&P, the FT, the DAX, the CAC, um, all, all ordinaries, they all made their low in March of 2009. And the resource stocks did not confirm that low. And that shows you the, the relative performance. People wanted, thinking that the end of the world is coming, you've got to sell the the, the, the cyclicals, um, in reality, um, they had relative strength, and they've got the, the displaying that relative strength. That relative strength will continue. Now, if we take that Philadelphia Gold Index and divide it by the gold price, we find something else which is very interesting. The average of um, of, of this eyeballing is about point point three. Um, from, I'm sorry, you can't see that. That's from 1988, or sorry, 87. Um, so, if we go to, to that, we're talking over 20 years. The, the average is, a, is about point, point 0.2. It got really sold down. The stocks got sold down relative to gold. So, the stocks last year were ultra cheap, but they're still at the moment, and that level is 0.16. So, there's still about 25% discount to the gold price. So gold stocks in the United States are still cheap relative to the gold price. Now this is from Eric DeCroot. Those people who look at uh, Jim Sinclair's website will recognise it. Um, Eric's a, a real pessimist <laughs> about the economy and whatever. He's a guy who puts all those shadow stats down when he has his own. It's, it's all pretty miserable. But instead of us looking at this thing, uh, which is, doesn't show you very much, and, and most most people won't give you any more than about 20 years of the Philadelphia Gold Index. Well, have a look at this one. This is the S&P Gold, which um, has been put together by Eric de Groot. It used to be the S&P Precious Metal Index. Now, I almost fell off the chair when I saw this, because it explains a lot. Um, there's the high in 1980, and the gold sector is still at the same level as 1980. Now, would intuitively, would people have thought that? Because I, I, I thought that, you know, an index is, is reflecting human endeavour. I mean, share prices reflect human endeavour. You want to go out, you're going to build a mine, discover a deposit, you're going to um, construct a mine, you're going to produce gold, you're going to, do something. You're going to add value to shareholders. You're not going to sit, sit back and and just do whatever the commodity price does because you know, that, that's what's happened um, in, in any equity. So it really surprised me to find that we were the, at, at the same price right now 
that we were back in 1980. So this 28 years of consolidation with this long-term rising uptrend coming from 1921, so you know, nearly 100 years of, of history, we don't have very long at all before we get this moving up to the top part of this trend channel. And if we go up to the top part of this trend channel about here, that's about 1,000 on this index, so it's got to move up by 200%. So that's an index moving up 200%. That means the big stocks have got to move up probably 180%, 150%, and uh, the little stocks have got to go up either a multitude. So that, I think, is um, about to be... That's about what is about to unfold. It's very interesting if we look um, in... I mean, you're all familiar with the, uh, the idea of um, home state going up, you know, 100 times or whatever from, from 1927 uh, through to 1932. Remember in those days that we had a <coughs> gold price which was, okay, with blue value, but it was fixed. And the price of just about everything else fell. The price of labor fell, the price of, of, of um, gasoline and diesel fell. So they got a huge increase in margins. So if you're a gold producer, it's fantastic. And uh, we saw the increase in gold production. So, um, but thereafter, we had 27 years of, of sideways movement. Now, the 27 years doesn't mean anything um, relative to the 28 years, but what, what it shows is that matches my bond market, that ma matches this uptrend, and I think we're going to see a big um, movement. And it also, if, if you like, helps to understand the angst that seems to go right through the gold community. You know, it feels that the world is against them because the stocks go up and they get smashed down. But, but, but I, mean, if, if you watch um, Kipco 24 hour price, you, you, know, you can see that it smashed on the opening and then it might rally up and it's smashed on the close. And clearly it's market manipulation, it's not, not natural selling. So whatever's happening in the stocks is basically uh, from the same thing. So I think that it's reflecting this 28 years of sideways movement where there, there's some, must be some crazy <laughs> investors there. You, you wonder what their, uh, uh, their investment philosophy is. But I think we're coming out of that. And, uh, and this one again, um, with credit to Eric de Groot, um, he's saying that this is the, the blue is the gold price, and the gold price is leading the gold equities. So it's, it won't be long, guys. It won't be long. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth the wait. Hang in there. And it, it's interesting, I was just looking at something uh, overnight which is basically saying that um, as of Friday, the, the gold sector is the most oversold it's been since, since the real sell-offs um, that we got last year. So um, I'll get on to that in a minute, but I think what we're doing, we're, we're at that end of, end of the sell-off and uh, it could be quite exciting going forward. So, coming to Australia, uh, <coughs> it's been significant that the gold industry in Australia has been significantly rationalised. I guess that's one of the reasons why there's not a lot of interest because there's not many stocks to buy. They've all been taken over um, by Barrick, <laughs> Anglo, um, Goldfields, or Newmont. And um, well, I, I see that, that we're coming through that now, and a, and a new breed of producers are coming through. We'll see a production upturn into next year and um, I expect that uh, exploration funding will be expanded and very importantly um, exploration drilling is going to go under 100 meters depth now um, people need to understand particularly if you're uh, from overseas as you, as you know Australia is an old continent um, it's it's pretty stable it's a got a couple of important cratonic areas. We've got um, terrains that are uh, essentially hundreds of millions of years old. So there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of erosion. And uh, we also have quite a lot of oxidation of the rock, often down to two or three hundred meters. So in Western Australia, particularly where you've got these old terrains, the gold production that's taken place there has been in oxidized materials. And, um, Consequently, the, the, uh, the mining uh, approach is to sort of look for a large, relatively large open cut, and um, it's just a matter of going, doing a whole bunch of um, uh, RC or RAB 
um, exploration holes, go and get the assays, plug them into a computer, the engineer comes along, or the geologist comes along, yep, there's a resource there, that's the average grade, engineer comes along, here's the, the mine pit, um, get an off-the-shelf CIP plant, put it there, and a gold vein to get the capital, and zip, and, and you're off. Um, that's really what happened, and, and that's was responsible for that tremendous increase in gold production in Australia that I'll show you in a moment. But what's happened over the last um, two or three years, people like um, Goldfields, which took over the Western Mine um, St Ives operations, and Avoca, and Integra in particular, started to drill down. And you find that about 90% of all the drilling to date has been less than 100 metres. So it's been in the oxidised zone. It's starting to go below that, and some of the grades they're finding in the discoveries are uh, quite exciting. So we're going to find a lot more. There's a lot more exploration going. We've, we've um, made a, uh, a number of significant discoveries, and we're going to find more coming through. But however you look at them, we've still got asset values that are very severely discounted. We've still got gold companies and PEs at three and four that are a lot. So clearly, we're not in a in the late stages of a bull market. So they're, they're excellent long-term uh, opportunities to come into the sector. Uh, I hope you can read this, but basically what it says is th these are the top 10 gold mines in Australia. This is the operation, and um, uh, this, is the, this is the operation with Superpit in Kalgoorlie, Telfer up uh, in the Pilbara, Sunrise Dam uh, in the Yilgarn, in the St Ives in the Kalgoorlie, Cater in New South Wales, Tanami in the uh, Northern Territory, Ridgeway in New South Wales, Kanauna near Kalgoorlie, Cowell in New South Wales, and, and Plutonic. Um, is that one of your mines? Yeah, I've yeah. um, And Kalgoorlie, uh, and it's, uh, just note, Newmont and Barrick own the super pit, that's, that's our largest mine, not owned by an Australian company. Newcrest, that's an Australian one, Anglo, uh, a shanty, that's uh, obviously not from Australia, Goldfields, Newcrest, then Newmont, Newcrest, Barrick, Barrick, Barrick. And uh, the production is 600,000 ounces here, 579, 433, 488, 402, 287, 278, 267, down 127,000 ounces. So we, uh, our top 10 gold mines, um, of those, um, you, you can actually see seven of them uh, owned by foreign companies. So there isn't much experience or exposure in larger scale gold mines in the Australian market outside of Newcrest. That's very, very important to, to know. <coughs> but that's going to change. Now, Australia's production history. Um, I, I um, was, was fascinated with the, the history of Australian gold production. And um, I went back and, and plotted it from essentially 1857. Now, no, sorry, 1850. Now, Philip Bruce was telling us about this fellow Hargraves, who supposedly found the first gold uh, uh, in, in New South Wales, and he was actually rogue. This fellow named Dean Tipple Smith, uh, who, who, who found that. I think he's a relative of mine, <laughs> but that's by the way. Um, but he found it, and, and Hargraves took the the credit, but gold production um, went sort of fairly steadily and it, and it peaked in, in uh, 1900 um, at about 100 tonnes and then sort of declined uh, and by 1920 it fell about 75% and it, it stayed around 30 tonnes uh, right from uh, around about 1925 to 1960. Uh, there might have been a little for the Second World War and, I can't remember if it was up or down, but there was a blip. And it was interesting, um, with the, in 1930 when we had the rise of the gold price, uh, there was a little blip uh, of increase in production, but the main reason there was no increase in production, there was no capital, actually no capital to invest. Capital is really important. Um, the resource sector, particularly the gold industry, is very, very capital intensive from the from the um, exploration side to the, the development side, and quite often that capital was not available. It's also important for, for everyone to understand, just to put a little twist in things, up until about 1990, um, 
gold was tax-free, or so the profits from gold mining were tax-free. Now this is a really interesting thing, I, I, was, I was against it. <laughs> I'm not in favour of um, um, taxing, but what it meant was that every dollar you spent was capital. Now if you start thinking about having a balance sheet which has got gold in it instead of cash, think about it if you have no tax, which, which means that every dollar you spend is, is capital. It goes on the capital item, it's not a, an operating cost, it's the equivalent of capital. It's, it's an interesting one to think of. So getting a, a new pencil is a capital expenditure. Um, so anyway, uh, that was taken away, but that did have a, a big impact. But you can see that gold price peaked in, in 1980, but it, it took three or four years uh, for it to have any impact. And then, but by 1990, we were up to 250 tonnes, and then it peaked out at just over 300 tonnes in 1997. And so we had um, essentially 12 years of decline, and this year should be down a little on last year, but next year should start to rise as, as Philip's projects come through and push the uh, project up. But um, we're, we're on the way up again, and that's, that's the revitalization of, uh, within the industry. Now, it's also interesting to see what's happening by state. Now, Western Australia. Um, by far and away is the most important um, gold producer and it, it, it's interesting that I think it was only about 1995 or 1996 that Western Australia finally surpassed Victoria as the source of, of gold. Now Victoria's produced next to nothing since, since about 1920. Uh, it's, most, it's a very sad story but um, uh, Western Australia took essentially a hundred years to, to catch up to Victoria. But what is interesting is to see where New South Wales is coming through uh, with Katie Ridgeway from, from Newcrest and, and um, Lake Carroll and soon we'll probably get up here with uh, Helene, won't we? <laughs> so that, that's going to uh, increase. So state by state things are moving along. Now um, this is very interesting um, to show what has sort of happened um, Australian gold production declining uh, since '97, as, as you can see. But interestingly, our, our costs were, were relatively um, steady, and then we had a huge increase uh, over 2007-2008. That reflected higher uh, prices for distillate and uh, higher costs for everything. There was a huge boom in the resource sector, as you know. Prices for geologists, for field assistants, for for drilling just went went ballistic, and um, so the cash costs for, for 2009, we forecast for our universe about 690. Now that will come down um, into 2010, but it's, it's quite sobering to think that we need $600 to, to make money. That's cash costs without taking capital costs uh, into account. So Australia needs a, a high gold price, and almost everywhere except probably China, um, needs a higher gold price to maintain production. And the other interesting thing, um, uh, Professor, this might sort of help your your comment. Um, when the when the gold price goes down, um, the the grade um, tends to um, go up, and as the gold price comes up, the grade can come down because you can treat more ore. There is a there is a reservoir, if you like, of gold um, in a deposit, but it's really defined what we call the cutoff grade. But the cutoff grade is the lowest grade that you put through the mill. Now, obviously, if the gold price goes up, you can reduce your cutoff grade, which which often uh, will significantly increase the amount of gold that's in your reservoir or your reserve. Um, it's a matter of mine planning, but generally as the gold price goes up, we will get an increase in reserves. And um, the, the companies will tend to mine as, as, as much of that reserve as they can profitably. Now, in terms of exploration, we've got substantial increases in, in dollars over the past, past few years with some important new discoveries. Uh, I'll point those out. Um, <coughs> I'm sorry, uh, we've seen a lot of 
tenement consolidation as well, and that's, that's very, very important because the companies are becoming stronger, uh, merging companies together, uh, having big, bigger tenement bases, and um, successful deeper, deeper drilling in gold and copper. Now, these are the gold mineralisation areas that, that you need to be thinking about. Um, the yield garden in Western Australia is, has produced uh, an extraordinary amount of gold. We've had about um, 60 million ounces produced from the Kalgoorlie pit, but by the time you take everything together, I, I think we've probably had about oh, 250 million ounces taken out of the, this, this Yilgarn area. And, and they're, they're finding, just they're making discoveries to the east of this, which is relatively unexplored. Uh, they're finding new deposits up to the north and uh, some all, also some other things which aren't really in the Yilgarn, but in, there in Western Australia. Um, Tanami uh, is a new province which is growing and we're going to find more gold there, a lot more gold there. And Tennant Creek. Now, Tennant Creek um, is a, a gold field that's renowned for its high grades, but next to nothing has happened since about 1981. So that area is seeing a, a renaissance. The Drummond Basin, um, some epithermal things, and, and just to the north of that you've got Charters Towers and all those other areas there. Um, Charters Towers are a very interesting deposit. 6.6 million ounces were produced at an average grade of 34 grams, which is sort of, it's a Don Bradman of uh, uh, gold deposits in Australia. Unfortunately, the, the things are fairly narrow, narrow veins, and um, um, they are difficult to mine, but the, the guys are getting on top of it, I, I understand. But the other area, area which is of particular interest is the Lachlan, and, and again, this is where we've got Cadia and Ridgeway, Lake Cowell, and, um, and Philip Bruce's Hill End Gold. We're going to find a lot more discoveries here. Alcane's tombing me discovery and McPhillamy's um, is very, very exciting. And this area around here is um, Bendigo. So those areas are going to get a lot of attention and I think we're going to get some uh, new discoveries as the exploration program uh, takes into account new technologies and a lot better understanding of the geology. Um, a lot of these basins in here are still pretty well un unknown, they're, they're not very well defined at all. Um, and there's a lot more work to be done. So these are the areas that I mentioned. On Cloncurry in, in Queensland, near the Drummond Basin is, is pretty important, west of the, west of the Drummond Basin. Now, uh, exploration um, expenditures in Australia have been around $400 million. Um, they double, so they jumped 50% in 2008, they're down a bit in 2009, and I expect these things to start rising and, and be quite strong going forward. So, the conclusions, um, gold price is, is suggesting inflation, monetary inflation, currency pressure, whatever you want to call it, um, it's coming. And the international interest in Australia is only modest to date, so I, I do expect to see uh, a lot more interest, particularly out of the UK, because there'd be, there hasn't been much interest to date, and also from the US, if the A dollar uh, continues to be strong. Exploration success will drive a lot of these small companies and um, gold stocks are in the early stages of a multi-year surge, particularly if that Eric the Groot um, thing is, is any indication. Now, I talked about this yesterday. Uh, it's a bit controversial, but um, uh, this, is, this is very exciting. Um, now, I, I know that the Robert Prechter of the Elliott Wave thinks we're here. <laughs> we're going down to oblivion down there, probably down here. <laughs> um, but it's interesting, if we, if we look at this in terms of not so much one, two, three, four, or Fibonacci numbers or whatever, stuff like that, think of it more in terms of moods in the market. And I can assure you that um, we haven't seen any euphoria yet. Now, last year obviously finished something. It, it, it was a um, down move which finished an up move, whatever it was. But euphoria is usually marched, marked by very strong uh, market threat. That is, the small stocks are, are doing very well, the big stocks are doing well. Uh, lots of players are in there. There'll, there'll be um, new funds being set up for gold or commodities or whatever. Well, that didn't happen. We didn't have euphoria last year. And it's interesting, if you go back to the market mood over that period, November, December, January, um, did anyone see it as an opportunity? 
No, not the man that not most people. You read the finance pages, go back to read the finance pages of that period. It was, hey, get me out, get me cash. The world's ending, I want cash. And it was, was not seen as an opportunity. Um, for the same reason, uh, I mentioned yesterday, we did 13 IPOs at, in 2007, more than any other broker. I mean, just a little, little broken firm in, in Sydney, we did 13 IPOs. Well, as I mentioned before, only one of those did we have other brokers saying, hey, we want stock in there. Um, and the others we actually had to sell to our client base or whomever. Um, and, and most of them did, did quite well. Um, but there, were, there, there was no queue of people to get prospectuses. There no, the phone wasn't running hot. People wanted to, to get on board. So, and, and also the institutions were, would only have three stocks, as I, I would continually find, that had BHP or Rio, that would give them their diversified resources. They had Woodside, because that would give them oil and gas. And then they would have uh, Newcrest, or, um, because that was gold. Liquids, liquid stocks, um, they're the only ones that were there, so we had no optimism. We come back to this thing, well, we certainly had pessimism, and we had buckets of it. And, and, and this is very interesting because pessimism is a wave two by its nature, and it follows a wave one, and wave one is characterized by disbelief. Disbelief starts something after something is finished. It's starting something after something's finished. So, hey, it's a false storm. Oh, it's too early. No, it's not right. It's all going to come back. False rally, and it comes down here. Told you so. Yeah, going back. And even the bulls start to feel horrible, and um, everyone gets really pessimistic. And that's that's a, a great buying time. But the really interesting thing about this period of disbelief is, when did the gold price bottom? March 1999. When did the oil price bottom? October 98. So we've had 10 years of bull market in gold and oil. So we just come on report. And no participation by the public or the institutions in oil stocks or gold stocks. The, the small cap gold stocks and, and oil stocks last year were down there while BHP and the website were up there with the oil price and the coal price and whatever. So um, the Market breadth was very, very small. So I reckon we're there. We've done our first wave up. We've had a pullback, and the pullbacks we've had in the last last week, everyone's gone, it's going down again. It's going down again. It's horrible, horrible. And um, Rich Prechters, or Robert Prechters out there. Yeah, 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 here it goes. And um, <coughs> we're doing another one. We're doing two. And so we're, we're, we're about to start three. Three of three. Or another one, one, two of three. But anyway, it's, it's, it's there. That's, so that's where I think we are. And I take that in the view of what's happening in China and what's happening in South America and MENA and, and India and whatever I've spoken about previously. The Jim Rogers view is that, you know, I'm the 20 years of the bull market, all that sort of stuff. But basically, um, this is what the markets are telling me. This is what the markets are telling me and not what some poor um, twisted misanthrope in the graceful of Alabama or wherever it is, is, is sort of telling us what's going to happen. So, um, our portfolio recommendations, obviously we want to be overweight the gold sector, we want to have the leaders, you've got to have liquidity, you need dividend income, um, you've got to have some mid-caps, you've got to have some new producers, and um, we usually have about 40% of our portfolio in, in the larger stocks, another 30% here, and then that leaves us to have um, 30% here and 20% in a whole range of things like this. Now, typically we will make, we'll have three or four of these stocks will make us 10, 20 times our money. Um, one will be a doll um, and three will be also rands. Um, these things will perform with the market, these will outperform the market and these guys will also give you very strong results. So when you take a portfolio approach, um, you know, we can still make 100% or so uh, on our portfolio you know, based on that. We, we, we've got to have at least 10 small caps and close to 20 because we never know which one's going to run and which one's going to give us that 100 times our money. And we have had those things that have gone from 10 million, sub $10 million market cap to a billion. And that's it. So, um, that's it.
Yep, so thank you very much.